Well, here at EBC, we're on a journey through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. This church was a church that Paul had never visited. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Some of those people Paul had met before. And he's writing to this church to make it very clear. What is this gospel? The good news about Jesus that leads to salvation. We saw as an overview, uh, the main point of the, of the book of Romans, that through the gospel, God saves everyone who believes, transforming the faithful towards love and life together. And we saw that in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul, it was like Paul's thesis statement, his main point. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First, to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then Paul takes his readers through this systematic understanding of that good news. Beginning first in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, speaking about sin and why we need salvation, why we need this gospel. Then in chapter 3, 21 through 5, 21, Paul speaks about how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel by faith. We're in the middle of that section on faith right now. And so looking today at chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. Now, earlier in the service, we spoke the Apostles' Creed. We declared that together. And it begins, I believe. We're talking about faith, so... I want to take a little aside here. Stephen uh, said that this is like a statement of faith for us. So what does it mean to believe, to have faith? Well, it's more than simply agreeing that God exists, although that is a starting point, as Hebrews 11.6 says. Faith is trusting. You see, Christians believe in God. But faith is more than just believing in God. It's committing to God. When we say, I believe, we are declaring allegiance to a king. But even more than this, when Christians say, I believe, it's it's the declaration of a faith that leads to obedient action. Paul calls it in Romans 1.5, the obedience that comes from faith. And he's going to say it again at the end of the book in chapter 16. Is this the kind of faith that you have? The obedience that comes from faith. In which, ways are these, in which ways does your faith need to grow? Uh, that God exists? Perhaps that's where you are today. 
Is it that you need to trust in God? Or is it that you need to commit to God as to a king? Or does your faith need to grow in obedience? Faithfully obeying God. Well, this is the kind of faith that Paul points to in Abraham that we're looking at today, our father of faith. It's the main thrust of the passage and the main point of our sermon today, which is the credit of righteousness comes through faith in a resurrected Lord. The credit of righteousness comes through faith in a resurrected Lord. We'll consider this in three thoughts from this passage. First, God's promise in verse 13 to 16. Secondly, Abraham's example in 17 to 21. And then thirdly, faith's object, verses 22 to 25. Alright, well, in verses 13 to 16, Paul clearly states that God's promise is to credit his righteousness as a gift to be received by faith, not through obedience to the law. Now, maybe you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, you just said that faith leads to obedience. So are we to obey or are we not to obey. Well, let's let's think about this relationship between faith and obedience and how those come together. The promise of God is a, a restored relationship with him, you see. But that reconciliation requires a righteousness that is as perfect as he is. The question is, how do we get that righteousness? Is it, is it earned through the, the work that we do by obeying God's law? Or, or is it a gift that is given to us by God? Well, Paul has just shown from Genesis fifteen six how Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed and it was credited to him. He then, Paul then points to the order of Abraham's faith and obedience. This is from last week, where he shows that circumcision came after faith. First faith, then came circumcision, then the sign. And in this way, Paul is saying in verses 11 and 12 that that when we have that kind of faith, Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised and also those who are not only circumcised but follow in the footsteps of that faith. He is the father of all who believe. And now, now in, in the section we're looking at, Today, Paul turns to the law. Do we need to obey the law to receive righteousness? Now, the law came through Moses 430 years after Abraham lived. 
And he says, if obedience to the law is required, in verse 14 this is, then faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. So God's promises can't be received by obeying the sign of circumcision and it can't be received by obeying the law either. And so therefore, Paul says in verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, that is the Jews who would believe, but also to those Gentiles like you and I who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. Now because God's promise comes by faith, His grace can be guaranteed to all who have that faith like Abraham. That's good news for us. If it came by obeying something that we didn't have, we would be stuck. And if it depended on our actions, which we can't perform, we would be utterly lost. Those who have this faith, the faith like Abraham, are called Abraham's offspring, his children, no matter what nationality they come from. And in this way, God's promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations is fulfilled. Because we all come with that same faith from many nations. So then, as our second point states, Abraham is our example. And we, we, we would do well to say, what does this faith of Abraham look like? Well, in Romans 4, 1 to 12, Paul focused there on Genesis 15. There we saw that Abraham believed God's promise. God credited this faith as righteousness to Abraham. That was Genesis 15. Genesis 16, Abraham agreed to his wife's plan to kind of help God out in terms of bringing this son that was promised. And the result was Ishmael, the, the son of Sarah's slave, the, the slave woman. They had, they had tried to do this on their own at that point. But Paul's focus here in Romans 4, 13-25 is Genesis 17, which Jeremy read to us just a little while ago. Now, 13 years has passed between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. Abraham's an older man. And God appears to him again with the promise of a son. This time, not only from his body, but also from Sarah's body. Did you see that as we read that last, that last paragraph that Jeremy read? It would be Sarah's child as well as Abraham's. And he changes their names, promising that Abraham will be the father of many nations. Well, here in Genesis 17, 
God's word is more clear. Abraham's faith has grown. And this time, rather than trying to work things out on his own, this time Abraham waits on God to fulfill his promise. Let's consider a a couple things from Abraham's example. First, what did Abraham believe about God? Well, look, look in verse 17. Abraham is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. And what did he believe? The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Calling into being things that were not most likely refers to God speaking creation into existence. He did that out of nothing. Which is nearly what God must do in the miracle of Isaac's birth. Look at verse 19. Paul Paul even says it there. He says, God created life from Abraham's 100-year-old as good as dead body. And he did that in the womb of Sarah that was also dead. That sort of thing doesn't just happen naturally. God powerfully created life out of nothing from the dead. A body, two bodies that were as good as dead. And Abraham believed. Abraham believed God's unlimited power could accomplish that. Well, secondly, how does Paul tell us what are the characteristics of this faith that Abraham has? There's three that are highlighted between verses 19 to 21. First, it's without weakening. Without weakening in his faith, you see, Abraham faced the facts about his own and Sarah's nearly dead bodies. How easy it would have been for them to see the circumstances of, uh, that they were facing in their own bodies and doubt God's promise from the very beginning. How easy it would be to doubt just because of their circumstances. Imagine yourself in, in, in Abraham's 99-year-old sandals. Your wife is well past the age to bear kids. You've tried since you were young. You long to have children. And now Sarah's in her 80s. Well, secondly, it's the second characteristic is that he it says he's without wavering. Abraham believed without wavering through unbelief regarding this promise of God. Abraham had tried in his own thinking about God's promise back in, in Genesis 15. He, he tried in Genesis 16 to help it out a little bit. He produced Ishmael. You know, church, I think one of the things that that helps us to see is that Abraham's faith, it might not have been perfect, 
But he came back to the promises of God. He came back to the promise of God. And this time, in Genesis 17, he waits on the Lord. In fact, Paul says here, the third thing we see, is that Abraham is fully persuaded. He was strengthened in his faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Believer, those of you who have trust in Christ, are you fully persuaded that God has power to do what He's promised? That He's willing to do what He's promised? Do you, do you believe that He breaks the power of sin in your life? Do you believe that He credits righteousness to you? Now, perhaps, perhaps you feel overwhelmed by circumstances that, that are ahead of you. Maybe you've wavered or weakened in your faith. I want to encourage you to come back to the promises of God, like Abraham did. God has graciously kept God graciously kept Abraham in those promises. And He will hold you fast in them also. You know, as Christians, we know that the, the world is broken, that sin dominates, that, that we're not perfect. But Christians also know that God is powerful, that He is good, and that He's faithful to those whom He calls to Himself. I know that many of you have had to face heavy things, pain, suffering, even even some of you recently. Your faith has been tested. For some of you, it's even being tested right now. What do you do? What do you do? Where do you turn when you face impossible circumstances, when you're struggling to understand, when, when you're suffering in pain, when you're feeling lost to overwhelming darkness, or you feel your prayers just aren't, aren't getting through to God somehow. You know, a, there was a blogger and a singer named Nightbird. She died earlier this year after a struggle with cancer. She posted during her struggle this statement, one among many. When it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, she says, He adds to it. He's more of a giver than he is a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far away? My 
my Christian friend, your unanswered prayer isn't necessarily a reflection of sin or your performance. God may be calling you to strengthen your faith. Believer, remember that the same shepherd who has been with you in the green pastures and beside the still waters, he is the same shepherd who is leading you through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with you. So don't kick against his rod and his staff. Therefore, your comfort. This test of Abraham, the test of his faith, it didn't end with the birth of Isaac, actually. Later, in Genesis 22, we see that God tests his faith again. And he's told to take this this miracle child, your son, the son you love, your one and only son, and sacrifice him on the mountain I will show you. Can you imagine God giving you that kind of test of faith? I'm trying to figure out how I would respond. Would I just wait silently hoping that maybe God would change his mind? Would I immediately cry out, No, Lord! Like, like, like Peter did when, when Jesus speaks of his own death. What did Abraham's faith lead him to do in this test? The Bible says he got up early the next morning and set out. Early the next morning and set out. He found the place. He climbed the mountain. He built the altar. He bound up his son. He raised the knife. And in the process of slaying his son, the son he loved, his one and only son, only then did God step in. Only in that last moment. Genesis 22:12 says, "Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son." And then God provides a substitute sacrifice, a ram, in the place of Isaac. What was going through the mind of Abraham during this test? Well, thank God he has given us that revelation. In Hebrews eleven seventeen and through 19, he says of this event, this test, he, Abraham, who had embraced the promise, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, will be counted. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. 
again here, we see Abraham believed that life, that God could give life to the dead. You know, this week in our home group, Sister Asma pointed out that Abraham's faith was a growing faith. And, and you can see it as you read through his life in Genesis 12 to 22. Abraham's faith, it wasn't perfect. But his God is. Abraham's this amazing example of a person who walked by faith and not by sight. And may we also as believers in Christ have faith like Abraham that though not perfect is growing. Growing. Verse 23 to 25 in Romans. It says that those who have this kind of faith those are the ones that God will credit righteousness. Like Abraham, we Christians believe that God has raised the dead. Amen? Let's look at the object of our faith. Our resurrected Lord in our third point. In verse 21, Paul tells the reason why God created or God credited righteousness to Abraham. It's because he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Abraham believed God. His word. He believed God had the power to give Abraham a son and make him the father of many nations even though that meant calling into being things that were not and bringing life from his as good as dead body. Paul says in the the verses following that these words were written also for us, for us who believe him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. They were written for us. They were written for you and me. And like Abraham, we Christians believe in God who raises or who gives life to the dead. He raised Jesus from the dead. And He will raise us who believe also when He comes again to judge the living and the dead. Well then... In verse 25, Paul restates the gospel with a clear, brief statement of faith. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is our creed. This is a statement of what the Christian faith is. It's, it's what we celebrate on Easter and every day of the year. Today is called Good Friday. On this day we remember Christ crucified, shamefully naked, painfully nailed to a cruel Roman cross. His blood dropping to the ground as the sprinkled blood of God's ultimate sacrifice of atonement. 
cleansing the believer of their sin. Why would such a horrific event be called good? Well, it's because in love, Jesus chose to lay down his life. He chose to give himself up in the place of ruined sinners like me, like you. You see, along with the rest of humanity, we have committed the greatest crime of the universe. Tragically, we've turned our back on our Creator. We, we want to live our own lives. We want to live our own way. And, and the penalty of that re- rebellion against our Creator is death and division from God and, and from others. And try as we might, we cannot reverse the curse. We, we cannot make ourselves right with God. We can't make up for the greatness of our sin. Only a perfect sacrificial lamb could cover our shame, could, could pay our debt. And, and Jesus died that death. A a death that he didn't deserve so that God's grace could be freely given to us. In that sacrifice, the greatest injustice in history became the greatest display of divine mercy. And then three days later, Tragedy turned to triumph. Jesus rose victorious from the grave. The sadness of Good Friday is answered in the celebration of Easter Sunday. This resurrection guarantees all his promises to those who believe in him. So, believer, understand. That the resurrection guarantees that He breaks the power of sin in your life. The resurrection guarantees that the credit of righteousness required to be justified before God is yours through faith. This credit of righteousness comes through faith in a resurrected Lord. So then, what must you do to be saved, to receive this blessing of God's promise? Well, first, believe. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Christ's death and resurrection. What He's done for you. And you can do this right now where you sit. Put it your faith in Jesus, the One who loved you and gave Himself up for you. If you're ready to trust Jesus today, then, then come talk with me. Talk with one of the members of this church. Don't let the sun go down on these words. 
And don't trust in yourself. Trust now in Christ. What does it mean for us who are believing that God raised Jesus from the dead? Well, let's consider a few applications. First, God's power is at work in you. Saint of God, God's power is at work in you. God raised Jesus from the dead. And Ephesians 1.12 says that the same incomparably great power is at work for us who believe. So are you struggling in the fight against sin or in your desire to obey God? Then meditate on the resurrection. Let, let your thoughts soak in that. Look not to your own power to fight sin or to obey God. Call on God to fight for you. Ask Him whose power raised Christ from the dead to bring life to your sin-dead body. Remember verse 17 that said that God gives life to the dead, calls things into being that we're not. Well, what we don't see now, God brings forth by the power of His Word. So, so I mean, are you, are you wondering, how will I ever walk in righteousness and holiness? Well, remember that you were dead in your sins. Your, your father, Jesus said, was the devil. But God brought you to life and made you a child of Abraham, a, chi- a child of God. He has transferred you through faith from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His own beloved Son. If you're believing in Jesus, that's you. So, child of God, have this faith that is fully persuaded that God is able to do in you what He's promised. He has given you all that you need to to know to do His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's will, says 1 Thessalonians, is that you be sanctified, that you be made holy. Therefore, even as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, set your mind on that transformation by His Word. And you can walk with Him in this. You're not alone. Your shepherd is guiding you. Now, I've said this before, maybe you've heard me say it, but it's, it's so much easier to, to actually steer a car that's in motion than one that's parked. You know, so, so take the things that you, you know, get moving with what you know God is saying, and He will give you the faith and the ability to walk in the things you don't yet know. All right, well, number two, it's not your power. 
It's not your power. Verse 17 is not saying that we can speak things into existence that are not. It's not what it's saying. What it says is that we trust God, His will, His word, not our own will, not our own power. God does that. It means that we can walk by faith, not by sight, just like our father Abraham. For instance, this bringing life to the dead means that God is able to save that loved one or that colleague that you're sharing the gospel with. He's able to do it. So as you pray and proclaim the gospel, in hope, believe that God can bring them to life through faith in Christ. Keep praying for them to come to faith. Keep proclaiming that gospel despite their resistance or the circumstances that surround that situation. Whatever it looks like, don't look at the circumstances like Abraham. We don't know who God is calling to himself or how that will happen, but this we know. By the power of a resurrected Lord and even our own testimony for walking in faith, God is able to bring life from dead souls. Amen? If you're a child of God, it means that He did that for you. And He can do the same for those that you're praying for. Well, third, believer, this credit of righteousness comes through faith in a resurrected Lord. That's our third application. It's a promise guaranteed by resurrection. It means you can rest securely in that truth. God has made us co-heirs with Christ. And this promised inheritance that He has set aside for us in heaven, it can never spoil, fade, or be taken away. So, so looking forward to that inheritance, how will that change your goals, your focus? Uh, once I was pursuing a career because I thought it would, you know, I wanted to be rich and well-known. Uh, that, that was my dream. At the time. But when I came to Christ, I humbly changed what, I, I, what would only serve myself to what I might be able to use to serve Christ. How, how, how does looking at that future inheritance change your goals, your focus? How does it change your fears? Concerning worldly status or possessions. Set your eyes towards the inheritance that is above. Well, earlier in this service, we proclaimed, I believe. We believe in a resurrection. Christ's that has happened and ours that is yet to happen. And it's this resurrection that's the central piece 
of the Christian faith. For, like we said before, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are still in our sins and pitied above all people in the world. But in truth, that grave is empty. The Jews, all they needed to do that day was to produce the body of a dead Jesus to prove those disciples wrong, to prove that the resurrection wasn't real, that it didn't happen. Do you know that all the disciples, with the exception of John, died terrible deaths proclaiming and rejoicing in a resurrected Savior? John, in fact, he died in in exile in, in the island of Patmos. Listen, if the resurrection was a lie, do you think they would have taken that all the way to their tortured deaths? Not for a lie. We believe the grave was empty. And it's empty still. We believe that the resurrected Lord guarantees that God will credit Righteousness to those who believe. And we believe that one day, we too will be resurrected to eternal life with Him, enjoying an inheritance that will never fade, spoiled, held for those who have the faith of Abraham. And we, church, if you believe in Jesus, you are the offspring of Abraham. You are a child of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, You have done what no one could do. You spoke into being things that were not. You brought life from the dead. Lord, we look at our own lives. We look back and see that we too once were dead in our sins. There was nothing we could do to to save ourselves. And yet you in love sent Christ to die for us, to take on our sin, that we might have life and be found in Him. Having a righteousness that is not our own, but that He has given to us through faith. Oh Lord, I pray that if anyone is here and does not know that righteousness, that they would give themselves to You completely, saying, I believe in every meaning of that word. We pray for them right now that you would bring faith to them. And Lord, for those of us who do believe, we pray that we would walk in faith, not by sight, like our father Abraham. We pray for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen.